0: Hello and welcome to Time-Tested Tales, a new podcast series where I'll be reading chapters from classic stories every week. All of the stories I'll be sharing here are also available as full-length audiobooks on various platforms including Audible, Apple Books, Barnes & Noble, and Google Play. So, if you can't wait for the next chapter or you want to support the podcast, follow the links in the podcast description to get the whole story. Now, without further ado, let's continue The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde by Robert Louis Stevenson. Hope you enjoy, and if you do, please leave a rating and review of the podcast. Thank you. Chapter 7 Incident at the Window it chanced on Sunday, when Mr. Utterson was on his usual walk with Mr. Enfield, that their way lay once again through the by-street, and that when they came in front of the door, both stopped to gaze on it. "'Well,' said Enfield, "'that story is at an end, at least. We shall never see more of Mr. Hyde.' "'I hope not,' said Utterson. "'Did I ever tell you that I once saw him, and shared your feeling of repulsion?' It was impossible to do the one without the other, returned Enfield, and by the way, what an ass you must have thought me not to know that this was a back way to Dr. Jekyll's. It was partly your own fault that I found it out, even when I did. So you found it out, did you? said Utterson, but if that be so, we may step into the court and take a look at the windows. To tell you the truth, I am uneasy about poor Jekyll, and even outside I feel as if the presence of a friend might do him good. The court was very cool and a little damp, and full of premature twilight, although the sky, high up overhead, was still bright with sunset. The middle one of the three windows was halfway open, and sitting close beside it, taking the air with an infinite sadness of mien. Like some disconsolate prisoner, Utterson saw Dr. Jekyll. "'What, Jekyll?' he cried. "'I trust you are better?' "'I am very low, Utterson,' replied the doctor drearily. "'Very low. It will not last long, thank God.' "'You stay too much indoors,' said the lawyer. "'You should be out whipping up the circulation like Mr. Enfield and me.' This is my cousin, Mr. Enfield, Dr. Jekyll. Come now, get your hat and take a quick turn with us. You are very good, sighed the other. I should like to, very much, but no, 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 it is quite impossible, I dare not. But indeed, Utterson, I am very glad to see you. This is really a great pleasure. I would ask you and Mr. Enfield up, but the place is really not fit." "'Why, then,' said the lawyer, good-naturedly, "'the best thing we can do is to stay down here and speak with you from where we are.' "'That is just what I was about to venture to propose,' returned the doctor with a smile. But the words were hardly uttered before the smile was struck out of his face, and succeeded by an expression of such abject terror and despair as froze the very blood of the two gentlemen below.' They saw it but for a glimpse, for the window was instantly thrust down, but that glimpse had been sufficient, and they turned and left the court without a word. In silence, too, they traversed the by-street, and it was not until they had come into a neighbouring thoroughfare, where even upon a Sunday there were still some stirrings of life, that Mr. Utterson at last turned and looked at his companion. They were both pale and there was an answering horror in their eyes. "'God forgive us. God forgive us,' said Mr. Utterson. But Mr. Enfield only nodded his head very seriously and walked on once more in silence. Chapter 8 The Last Night Mr. Utterson was sitting by his fireside one evening after dinner, when he was surprised to receive a visit from Poole. "'Bless me, Poole, what brings you here?' he cried, and then, taking a second look at him, "'What ails you?' he added. "'Is the doctor ill?' "'Mr. Utterson,' said the man, "'there is something wrong.' "'Take a seat, and here is a glass of wine for you,' said the lawyer. "'Now, take your time.' and tell me plainly what you want. You know the doctor's ways, sir, replied Poole, and how he shuts himself up. Well, he's shut up again in the cabinet, and I don't like it, sir. I wish I may die if I like it. Mr. Utterson, sir, I'm afraid. Now, my good man, said the lawyer, be explicit. What are you afraid of? I've been afraid for about a week. Returned Poole, doggedly disregarding the question. And I can bear it no more. The man's appearance amply bore out his words. His manner was altered for the worse, and except for the moment when he had first announced his terror, he had not once looked the lawyer in the face. Even now he sat with the glass of wine untasted on his knee, and his eyes directed to a corner of the floor. I can bear it no more, he repeated. Come, said the lawyer, I see you have some good reason, Poole, I see there is something seriously amiss, try to tell me what it is. I think there's been foul play, said Poole, hoarsely. Foul play, cried the lawyer, a good deal frightened, and rather inclined to be irritated in consequence. "'What foul play! What does the man mean?' "'I daren't say, sir,' was the answer. "'But will you come along with me and see for yourself?' Mr. Utterson's only answer was to rise and get his hat and greatcoat, but he observed with wonder the greatness of the relief that appeared upon the butler's face, and perhaps with no less, that the wine was still untasted when he set it down to follow.' It was a wild, cold, seasonable night of March, with a pale moon lying on her back as though the wind had tilted her, and flying rack of the most diaphanous and lawny texture. The wind made talking difficult and flecked the blood into the face. It seemed to have swept the streets unusually bare of passengers, besides. For Mr. Utterson thought he had never seen that part of London so deserted. He could have wished it otherwise. Never in his life had he been conscious of so sharp a wish to see and touch his fellow creatures. For struggle as he might, there was borne in upon his mind a crushing anticipation of calamity The square, when they got there, was full of wind and dust, and the thin trees in the garden were lashing themselves along the railing. Poole, who had kept all the way a pace or two ahead, now pulled up in the middle of the pavement, and in spite of the biting weather, took off his hat and mopped his brow with a red pocket handkerchief. But for all the hurry of his coming, these were not the dews of exertion that he wiped away but the moisture of some strangling anguish, for his face was white, and his voice, when he spoke, harsh and broken. "'Well, sir,' he said, "'here we are, and God grant there be nothing wrong.' "'Amen, Poole,' said the lawyer. Thereupon the servant knocked in a very guarded manner. The door was opened on the chain, and a voice asked from within, "'Is that you, Poole?' ''It's all right,'' said Poole. ''Open the door.'' The hall, when they entered it, was brightly lighted up, the fire was built high, and about the hearth the whole of the servants, men and women, stood huddled together like a flock of sheep. At the sight of Mr. Utterson, the housemaid broke into hysterical whimpering, and the cook, crying out, ''Bless God, it's Mr. Utterson!'' ran forward as if to take him in her arms, What, what, are you all here? said the lawyer peevishly. Very irregular, very unseemly. Your master would be far from pleased. They're all afraid, said Poole. Blank silence followed, no one protesting. Only the maid lifted her voice and now wept loudly. Hold your tongue, Poole said to her, with a ferocity of accent that testified to his own jangled nerves and indeed, when the girl had so suddenly raised the note of her lamentation, they had all started and turned towards the inner door with faces of dreadful expectation. And now, continued the butler, addressing the knife-boy, reach me a candle, and we'll get this through hands at once. And then he begged Mr. Utterson to follow him, and led the way to the back garden. Now, sir, said he, "'You come as gently as you can. "'I want you to hear, and I don't want you to be heard. "'And see here, sir, if by any chance he was to ask you in. "'Don't go!' "'Mr. Utterson's nerves at this unlooked-for termination "'gave a jerk that nearly threw him from his balance.' But he recollected his courage and followed the butler into the laboratory building through the surgical theatre, with its lumber of crates and bottles, to the foot of the stair. Here Poole motioned him to stand on one side and listen, while he himself, setting down the candle and making a great and obvious call on his resolution, mounted the steps and knocked with a somewhat uncertain hand on the red baize of the cabinet door. "'Mr. Utterson, sir, asking to see you,' he called, and even as he did so, once more violently signed to the lawyer to give ear. A voice answered from within, "'Tell him I cannot see anyone,' it said complainingly. "'Thank you, sir,' said Poole, with a note of something like triumph in his voice and taking up his candle, he led Mr. Utterson back across the yard, and into the great kitchen, where the fire was out, and the beetles were leaping on the floor. "'Sir,' he said, looking Mr. Utterson in the eyes, "'was that my master's voice?' "'It seems much changed,' replied the lawyer, very pale, but giving look for look. "'Changed? Well, yes, I think so,' said the butler. Have I been twenty years in this man's house to be deceived about his voice? No, sir, master's made away with. He was made away with eight days ago, when we heard him cry out upon the name of God. And who's in there instead of him, and why it stays there, is a thing that cries to heaven, Mr. Utterson.' "'This is a very strange tale, Poole. This is rather a wild tale, my man,' said Mr. Utterson, biting his finger. "'Suppose it were as you suppose, supposing Dr. Jekyll to have been, well, murdered. What could induce the murderer to stay? That won't hold water. It doesn't commend itself to reason. Well, Mr. Utterson, you are a hard man to satisfy, but I'll do it yet,' said Poole all this last week you must know him or it whatever it is that lives in that cabinet has been crying night and day for some sort of medicine and cannot get it to his mind it was sometimes his way and the masters that is to write his orders on a sheet of paper and throw it on the stair we've had nothing else this week back nothing but papers and a closed door and the very meals left there to be smuggled in when nobody was looking. Well, sir, every day, I, and twice and thrice in the same day, there have been orders and complaints, and I have been sent flying to all the wholesale chemists in town. Every time I brought the stuff back, there would be another paper telling me to return it, because it was not pure and another order to a different firm.' "'This drug is wanted bitter bad, sir, whatever for.' "'Have you any of these papers?' asked Mr. Utterson. Poole felt in his pocket and handed out a crumpled note, which the lawyer, bending nearer to the candle, carefully examined. Its contents ran thus. "'Dr. Jekyll presents his compliments to Messrs. Moore. He assures them that their last sample is impure.' and quite useless for his present purpose. Dr. Jekyll had purchased a somewhat large quantity from Messrs M. He now begs them to search with most sedulous care, and should any of the same quality be left, forward it to him at once. Expense is no consideration. The importance of this to Dr. Jekyll can hardly be exaggerated. So far the letter had run composedly enough, but here, with a sudden splutter of the pen, the writer's emotion had broken loose. "'For God's sake!' he added. "'Find me some of the old!' "'This is a strange note,' said Mr. Utterson, and then sharply, "'How do you come to have it open?' "'The man at Moore's was main angry, sir, "'and he threw it back to me like so much dirt,' returned Poole. "'This is unquestionably the doctor's hand, do you know?' resumed the lawyer. "'I thought it looked like it,' said the servant, rather sulkily, and then with another voice. "'But what matters hand of right?' he said. "'I've seen him.' "'Seen him?' repeated Mr. Utterson. "'Well?' "'That's it,' said Poole. "'It was this way. I came suddenly into the theatre from the garden.' It seems he had slipped out to look for this drug, or whatever it is, for the cabinet door was open, and there he was at the far end of the room, digging among the crates. He looked up when I came in, gave a kind of cry, and whipped upstairs into the cabinet. It was but for one minute that I saw him, but the hair stood upon my head like quills. Sir, if that was my master... "'Why had he a mask upon his face? "'If it was my master, why did he cry out like a rat and run from me? "'I have served him long enough, and then the man paused and passed his hand over his face. "'These are all very strange circumstances,' said Mr. Utterson. "'But I think I begin to see daylight.' your master, Poole, is plainly seized with one of those maladies that both torture and deform the sufferer. Hence, for aught I know, the alteration of his voice, hence the mask and the avoidance of his friends, hence his eagerness to find this drug by means of which the poor soul retains some hope of ultimate recovery. God grant that he be not deceived. There is my explanation. It is sad enough, Poole, I, and appalling to consider, but it is plain and natural, hangs well together, and delivers us from all exorbitant alarms. Sir, said the butler, turning to a sort of mottled pallor, that thing was not my master, and there's the truth. My master, here he looked round him and began to whisper, he is a tall, fine build of a man, and this was more of a dwarf. Utterson attempted to protest. "'Oh, sir,' cried Poole, "'do you think I do not know my master after twenty years? Do you think I do not know where his head comes to in the cabinet door, when I saw him every morning of my life? No, sir, that thing in the mask was never Dr. Jekyll. God knows what it was, but it was never Dr. Jekyll.' "'and it is the belief of my heart that there was murder done.' Pool replied the lawyer, "'if you say that, it will become my duty to make certain. Much as I desire to spare your master's feelings, much as I am puzzled by this note which seems to prove him to be still alive, I shall consider it my duty to break in that door.' "'Ah, Mr. Utterson, that's talking,' cried the butler.' "'And now comes the second question,' resumed Utterson. "'Who is going to do it?' "'Why, you and me, sir,' was the undaunted reply. "'That's very well said,' returned the lawyer, "'and whatever comes of it, I shall make it my business to see you are no loser. "'There is an axe in the theatre, continued Poole, "'and you might take the kitchen poker for yourself.' The lawyer took that rude but weighty instrument into his hand, and balanced it. "'Do you know, Poole,' he said, looking up, "'that you and I are about to place ourselves in a position of some peril?' "'You may say so, sir, indeed,' returned the butler. "'It is well, then, that we should be frank,' said the other. "'We both think more than we have said. Let us make a clean breast.' This masked figure that you saw, did you recognize it? Well, sir, it went so quick, and the creature was so doubled up that I could hardly swear to that, was the answer. But if you mean, was it Mr. Hyde? Why, yes, I think it was. You see, it was much of the same bigness, and had the same quick, light way with it. And then who else could have got in by the laboratory door? You have not forgot, sir, that at the time of the murder he had still the key with him? But that's not all. I don't know, Mr. Utterson, if you ever met this Mr. Hyde. Yes, said the lawyer. I once spoke with him. Then you must know as well as the rest of us that there was something queer about that gentleman, something that gave a man a turn. I don't know rightly how to say it, sir, beyond this." that you felt in your marrow, kind of cold and thin. I own I felt something of what you describe, said Mr. Utterson. Quite so, sir, returned Poole. Well, when that masked thing, like a monkey, jumped from among the chemicals and whipped into the cabinet, it went down my spine like ice. Oh, I know it's not evidence, Mr. Utterson. I'm book-learned enough for that. But a man has his feelings, and I give you my Bible word, it was Mr. Hyde. Aye, aye, said the lawyer. My fears incline to the same point." Evil, I fear, founded, evil was sure to come of that connection. Ay, truly, I believe you, I believe poor Harry is killed, and I believe his murderer, for what purpose God alone can tell, is still lurking in his victim's room. Well, let our name be Vengeance, call Bradshaw." The footman came at the summons, very white and nervous. Pull yourself together, Bradshaw, said the lawyer. This suspense, I know, is telling upon all of you, but it is now our intention to make an end of it. Poole here and I are going to force our way into the cabinet. If all is well, my shoulders are broad enough to bear the blame. "'Meanwhile, lest anything should really be amiss, or any malefactor seek to escape by the back, you and the boy must go round the corner with a pair of good sticks and take your post at the laboratory door. We give you ten minutes to get to your stations.' As Bradshaw left, the lawyer looked at his watch. "'And now, Poole, let us get to ours,' he said, and, taking the poker under his arm, led the way into the yard.' The scud had banked over the moon, and it was now quite dark. The wind, which only broke in puffs and draughts into that deep well of building, tossed the light of the candle to and fro about their steps, until they came into the shelter of the theatre, where they sat down silently to wait. London hummed solemnly all around but nearer at hand the stillness was only broken by the sounds of a footfall moving to and fro along the cabinet floor. "'So it will walk all day, sir,' whispered Poole. "'Aye, and the better part of the night. Only when a new sample comes from the chemist there's a bit of a break. Ah, it's an ill conscience that's such an enemy to rest.' Ah, sir, there's blood foully shed in every step of it. But hark again, a little closer. Put your heart in your ears, Mr. Utterson, and tell me, is that the doctor's foot? The steps fell lightly and oddly, with a certain swing for all they went so slowly. It was different, indeed, from the heavy creaking tread of Henry Jekyll. Utterson sighed. "'Is there never anything else?' he asked. Poole nodded. "'Once,' he said. "'Once I heard it weeping. "'Weeping? "'How's that?' said the lawyer, conscious of a sudden chill of horror. "'Weeping like a woman or a lost soul,' said the butler. "'I came away with that upon my heart that I could have wept too.' but now the ten minutes drew to an end. Poole disinterred the axe from under a stack of packing straw. The candle was set upon the nearest table to light them to the attack, and they drew near with bated breath to where that patient foot was still going up and down, up and down in the quiet of the night. Jekyll, cried Utterson with a loud voice, I demand to see you. He paused a moment, but there came no reply. "'I give you fair warning. Our suspicions are aroused, and I must and shall see you,' he resumed. "'If not by fair means, then by foul. If not of your consent, then by brute force.' "'Utterson,' said the voice, "'for God's sake, have mercy.' "'Ah, that's not Jekyll's voice. It's Hyde's,' cried Utterson. "'Down with the door, Poole!' Poole swung the axe over his shoulder. The blow shook the building, and the red baize-door leapt against the lock and hinges. A dismal screech, as of mere animal terror, rang from the cabinet. Up went the axe again, and again the panels crashed and the frame bounded. Four times the blow fell, but the wood was tough and the fittings were of excellent workmanship, and it was not until the fifth that the lock burst and the wreck of the door fell inwards on the carpet. The besiegers, appalled by their own riot and the stillness that had succeeded, stood back a little and peered in. There lay the cabinet before their eyes in the quiet lamplight, a good fire glowing and chattering on the hearth, the kettle singing its thin strain, a drawer or two open, papers neatly set forth on the business table, and nearer the fire the things laid out for tea. The quietest room, you would have said, and but for the glazed presses full of chemicals, the most commonplace that night in London. Right in the middle there lay the body of a man, sorely contorted and still twitching. They drew near on tiptoe, turned it on its back, and beheld the face of Edward Hyde. He was dressed in clothes far too large for him, clothes of the doctor's bigness, the cords of his face still moved with a semblance of life. But life was quite gone, and by the crushed phial in the hand and the strong smell of kernels that hung upon the air, Utterson knew that he was looking on the body of a self-destroyer. "'We have come too late,' he said sternly. "'Whether to save or punish, Hyde is gone to his account, and it only remains for us to find the body of your master.' The far greater proportion of the building was occupied by the theatre, which filled almost the whole ground story and was lighted from above, and by the cabinet, which formed an upper story at one end and looked upon the court. A corridor joined the theatre to the door on the by-street, and with this the cabinet communicated separately by a second flight of stairs. There were besides a few dark closets." and a spacious cellar. All these they now thoroughly examined. Each closet needed but a glance, for all were empty, and all, by the dust that fell from their doors, had stood long unopened. The cellar, indeed, was filled with crazy lumber, mostly dating from the times of the surgeon who was Jekyll's predecessor. But even as they opened the door, they were advertised of the uselessness of further search by the fall of a perfect mat of cobweb, which had for years sealed up the entrance. Nowhere was there any trace of Henry Jekyll, dead or alive. Poole stamped on the flags of the corridor. He must be buried here, he said, hearkening to the sound. "'Or he may have fled,' said Utterson, "'and he turned to examine the door in the by-street. "'It was locked, and lying nearby on the flags "'they found the key already stained with rust. "'This does not look like use,' observed the lawyer. "'Use?' echoed Poole. "'Do you not see, sir, it is broken, "'much as if a man had stamped on it?' "'Aye,' continued Utterson, and the fractures, too, are rusty. The two men looked at each other with a scare. This is beyond me, Poole, said the lawyer. Let us go back to the cabinet. They mounted the stair in silence, and still, with an occasional awestruck glance at the dead body, proceeded more thoroughly to examine the contents of the cabinet, At one table there were traces of chemical work, various measured heaps of some white salt being laid on glass saucers, as though for an experiment in which the unhappy man had been prevented. That is the same drug that I was always bringing him, said Poole, and even as he spoke the kettle, with a startling noise, boiled over, This brought them to the fireside, where the easy-chair was drawn cosily up, and the tea-things stood ready to the sitter's elbow, the very sugar in the cup. There were several books on a shelf. One lay beside the tea-things open, and Utterson was amazed to find it a copy of a pious work, for which Jekyll had several times expressed a great esteem, annotated in his own hand with startling blasphemies. Next, in the course of their review of the chamber, the searchers came to the cheval glass, into whose depths they looked with an involuntary horror, but it was so turned as to show them nothing but the rosy glow playing on the roof the fire sparkling in a hundred repetitions along the glazed front of the presses, and their own pale and fearful countenances stooping to look in. This glass has seen some strange things, sir, whispered Poole, and surely none stranger than itself, echoed the lawyer in the same tones, for what did Jekyll He caught himself up at the word with a start, and then, conquering the weakness, "'What could Jekyll want with it?' he said. "'You may say that,' said Poole. Next they turned to the business table. On the desk, among the neat array of papers, a large envelope was uppermost, and bore in the doctor's hand the name of Mr. Utterson.' the lawyer unsealed it, and several enclosures fell to the floor. The first was a will drawn in the same eccentric terms as the one which he had returned six months before, to serve as a testament in case of death, and as a deed of gift in case of disappearance. But in place of the name of Edward Hyde, the lawyer, with indescribable amazement, read the name of Gabriel, John, Utterson. He looked at Poole, and then back at the paper, and last of all at the dead malefactor stretched upon the carpet. My head goes round, he said. He has been all these days in possession. He had no cause to like me. He must have raged to see himself displaced, and he has not destroyed this document. He caught up the next paper, It was a brief note in the doctor's hand, and dated at the top. "'Oh, Poole!' the lawyer cried. "'He was alive, and here this day. "'He cannot have been disposed of in so short a space. "'He must be still alive. "'He must have fled. "'And then, why fled, and how? "'And in that case, can we venture to declare this suicide? "'Oh, we must be careful.' I foresee that we may yet involve your master in some dire catastrophe. Why don't you read it, sir? asked Poole. Because I fear, replied the lawyer solemnly. God grant I have no cause for it. And with that he brought the paper to his eyes and read as follows. My dear Utterson, When this shall fall into your hands, I shall have disappeared, under what circumstances I have not the penetration to foresee. But my instinct and all the circumstances of my nameless situation tell me that the end is sure and must be early. Go then and first read the narrative which Lanyon warned me he was to place in your hands. And if you care to hear more... Turn to the confession of your unworthy and unhappy friend, Henry Jekyll. There was a third enclosure, asked Utterson. Here, sir, said Poole, and gave into his hands a considerable packet, sealed in several places. The lawyer put it in his pocket. I would say nothing of this paper. If your master has fled, or is dead, we may at least save his credit. It is now ten. I must go home and read these documents in quiet, but I shall be back before midnight, when we shall send for the police. They went out, locking the door of the theatre behind them, and Utterson, once more leaving the servants gathered about the fire in the hall, trudged back to his office to read the two narratives in which this mystery was now to be explained. Chapter 9 Dr. Lanyon's Narrative On the 9th of January, now four days ago, I received by the evening delivery a registered envelope addressed in the hand of my colleague and old school companion, Henry Jekyll. I was a good deal surprised by this, for we were by no means in the habit of correspondence. I had seen the man, dined with him indeed the night before, and I could imagine nothing in our intercourse that should justify formality of registration. The contents increased my wonder, for this is how the letter ran. 10th of December. Dear Lanyon, you are one of my oldest friends, and although we may have differed at times on scientific questions, I cannot remember, at least on my side, any break in our affection. There was never a day when, if you had said to me, Jekyll, my life, my honour, my reason, depend upon you, I would not have sacrificed my left hand to help you. Lanyon, My life, my honour, my reason are all at your mercy. If you fail me tonight, I am lost. You might suppose after this preface that I am going to ask you for something dishonourable to grant. Judge for yourself. I want you to postpone all other engagements for tonight. I, even if you were summoned to the bedside of an Emperor, to take a cab, unless your carriage should be actually at the door, and with this letter in your hand for consultation, to drive straight to my house. Poole, my butler, has his orders. You will find him waiting your arrival with a locksmith. The door of my cabinet is then to be forced, and you are to go in alone, to open the glazed press, letter E on the left hand, breaking the lock if it be shut. And to draw out with all its contents as they stand the fourth drawer from the top or which is the same thing the third from the bottom in my extreme distress of mind i have a morbid fear of misdirecting you but even if i am in error you may know the right drawer by its contents some powders a file and a paper book "'This drawer I beg of you to carry back with you to Cavendish Square exactly as it stands. "'That is the first part of the service. "'Now for the second. "'You should be back if you set out at once on the receipt of this long before midnight, "'but I will leave you that amount of margin.' not only in the fear of one of those obstacles that can neither be prevented nor foreseen, but because an hour when your servants are in bed is to be preferred for what will then remain to do. At midnight, then, I have to ask you to be alone in your consulting room, to admit with your own hand into the house a man who will present himself in my name." and to place in his hands the drawer that you will have brought with you from my cabinet. Then you will have played your part and earned my gratitude completely. Five minutes afterwards, if you insist upon an explanation, you will have understood that these arrangements are of capital importance, and that by the neglect of one of them, fantastic as they must appear, You might have charged your conscience with the death or the shipwreck of my reason. Confident as I am that you will not trifle with this appeal, my heart sinks and my hand trembles at the bare thought of such a possibility. Think of me at this hour in a strange place, laboring under a blackness of distress that no fancy can exaggerate, and yet well aware that... If you will but punctually serve me, my troubles will roll away like a story that is told. Serve me, my dear Lanyon, and save your friend, Henry Jekyll. P.S. I had already sealed this up when a fresh terror struck upon my soul. It is possible that the post-office may fail me, and this letter not come into your hands until tomorrow morning. In that case, dear Lanyon, do my errand when it shall be most convenient for you in the course of the day, and once more expect my messenger at midnight. It may then already be too late, and if that night passes without event, you will know that you have seen the last of Henry Jekyll. Upon the reading of this letter I made sure my colleague was insane, but till that was proved beyond the possibility of doubt I felt bound to do as he requested. The less I understood of this Farrago, the less I was in a position to judge of its importance, and an appeal so worded could not be set aside without a grave responsibility. I rose accordingly from table, got into a hansom, and drove straight to Jekyll's house. The butler was awaiting my arrival. He had received by the same post as mine a registered letter of instruction, and had sent at once for a locksmith and a carpenter. The tradesman came while we were yet speaking, and we moved in a body to old Dr. Denman's surgical theatre from which, as you are doubtless aware, Jekyll's private cabinet is most conveniently entered. The door was very strong, the lock excellent. The carpenter avowed he would have great trouble, and have to do much damage, if force were to be used, and the locksmith was near despair. But this last was a handy fellow, and after two hours' work the door stood open. The press marked E was unlocked, and I took out the drawer, had it filled up with straw and tied in a sheet, and returned with it to Cavendish Square. Here I proceeded to examine its contents. The powders were neatly enough made up, but not with the nicety of the dispensing chemist, so that it was plain that they were of Jekyll's private manufacture, and when I opened one of the wrappers I found what seemed to me a simple crystalline salt of a white colour. The phial, to which I next turned my attention, might have been about half full of a blood-red liquor, which was highly pungent to the sense of smell, and seemed to me to contain phosphorus and some volatile ether. At the other ingredients I could make no guess. The book was an ordinary version book, and contained little but a series of dates. These covered a period of many years, but I observed that the entries ceased nearly a year ago, and quite abruptly. Here and there a brief remark was appended to a date, usually no more than a single word, double, occurring perhaps six times in a total of several hundred entries, and once, very early in the list, and followed by several marks of exclamation, total failure, All this, though it whetted my curiosity, told me little that was definite. Here were a phial of some salt, and the record of a series of experiments that had led, like too many of Jekyll's investigations, to no end of practical usefulness. How could the presence of these articles in my house affect either the honour, the sanity, or the life of my flighty colleague? If his messenger could go to one place, why could he not go to another, and even granting some impediment? Why was this gentleman to be received by me in secret? The more I reflected, the more convinced I grew that I was dealing with a case of cerebral disease, and though I dismissed my servants to bed, I loaded an old revolver that I might be found in some posture of self-defence. Twelve o'clock had scarce rung out over London ere the knocker sounded very gently on the door. I went myself at the summons and found a small man crouching against the pillars of the portico. "Are you come from Dr Jekyll?" I asked. He told me yes by a constrained gesture, and when I had bidden him enter, he did not obey me without a searching backward glance into the darkness of the square there was a policeman not far off, advancing with his bull's eye open, and at the sight I thought my visitor started and made greater haste. These particulars struck me, I confess, disagreeably, and as I followed him into the bright light of the consulting room, I kept my hand ready on my weapon. Here at last I had a chance of clearly seeing him, I had never set eyes on him before, so much was certain. He was small, as I have said. I was struck besides with the shocking expression of his face, with his remarkable combination of great muscular activity and great apparent debility of constitution, and, last but not least, with the odd subjective disturbance caused by his neighbourhood. This bore some resemblance to incipient rigour, and was accompanied by a marked sinking of the pulse. At the time I set it down to some idiosyncratic personal distaste, and merely wondered at the acuteness of the symptoms, but I have since had reason to believe the cause to lie much deeper in the nature of man, and to turn on some nobler hinge than the principle of hatred. This person, who had thus, from the first moment of his entrance, struck in me what I can only describe as a disgustful curiosity, was dressed in a fashion that would have made an ordinary person laughable. His clothes, that is to say, although they were of rich and sober fabric, were enormously too large for him in every measurement, the trousers hanging on his legs and rolled up to keep them from the ground, the waist of the coat below his haunches, and the collar sprawling wide upon his shoulders. Strange to relate, this ludicrous accoutrement was far from moving me to laughter rather as there was something abnormal and misbegotten in the very essence of the creature that now faced me, something seizing, surprising, and revolting. This fresh disparity seemed but to fit in with and to reinforce it, so that to my interest in the man's nature and character there was added a curiosity as to his origin, his life, his fortune, and status in the world. These observations, though they have taken so great a space to be set down in, were yet the work of a few seconds. My visitor was, indeed, on fire with sombre excitement. "'Have you got it?' he cried. "'Have you got it?' and so lively was his impatience that he even laid his hand upon my arm and sought to shake me. I put him back, conscious at his touch of a certain icy pang along my blood. "'Come, sir,' said I, "'you forget that I have not yet the pleasure of your acquaintance. Be seated, if you please.' And I showed him an example." and sat down myself in my customary seat, and with as fair an imitation of my ordinary manner to a patient as the lateness of the hour, the nature of my preoccupations, and the horror I had of my visitor, would suffer me to muster. I beg your pardon, Dr. Lanyon, he replied civilly enough. What you say is very well founded, and my impatience has shown its heels to my politeness. I come here at the insistence of your colleague, Dr. Henry Jekyll, on a piece of business of some moment, and I understood—he paused and put his hand to his throat, and I could see, in spite of his collected manner, that he was wrestling against the approaches of the hysteria. I understood. A draw. But here I took pity on my visitor's suspense, and some perhaps on my own growing curiosity. There it is, sir, said I, pointing to the drawer where it lay on the floor behind a table and still covered with the sheet. He sprang to it and then paused and laid his hand upon his heart. I could hear his teeth grate with the convulsive action of his jaws, and his face was so ghastly to see that I grew alarmed both for his life and reason. "Compose yourself," said I. He turned a dreadful smile to me and as if with the decision of despair, plucked away the sheet. At sight of the contents, he uttered one loud sob of such immense relief that I sat petrified, and the next moment, in a voice that was already fairly well under control, "'Have you a graduated glass?' he asked. I rose from my place with something of an effort, and gave him what he asked. He thanked me with a smiling nod, measured out a few minims of the red tincture, and added one of the powders. The mixture, which was at first of a reddish hue, began in proportion as the crystals melted to brighten in colour, to effervesce audibly, and to throw off small fumes of vapour, Suddenly, and at the same moment, the ebullition ceased and the compound changed to a dark purple which faded again more slowly to a watery green. My visitor, who had watched these metamorphoses with a keen eye, smiled, set down the glass upon the table, and then turned and looked upon me with an air of scrutiny. And now, said he, to settle. What remains? Will you be wise? Will you be guided? Will you suffer me to take this glass in my hand and to go forth from your house without further parley? Or has the greed of curiosity too much command of you? Think before you answer, for it shall be done as you decide. As you decide, you shall be left as you were before." and neither richer nor wiser, unless the sense of service rendered to a man in mortal distress may be counted as a kind of riches of the soul. Or, if you shall so prefer to choose, a new province of knowledge and new avenues to fame and power shall be laid open to you. Here, in this room, upon the instant, and your sight shall be blasted by a prodigy to stagger the unbelief of Satan. Sir, said I, affecting a coolness that I was far from truly possessing, you speak enigmas, and you will perhaps not wonder that I hear you with no very strong impression of belief but I have gone too far in the way of inexplicable services to pause before I see the end. "'It is well,' replied my visitor. "'Lanyon, you remember your vows. What follows is under the seal of our profession. And now you have so long been bound to the most narrow and material views.' you who have denied the virtue of transcendental medicine, you who have derided your superiors, behold! He put the glass to his lips and drank at one gulp. A cry followed. He reeled, staggered, clutched at the table and held on, staring with injected eyes, gasping with open mouth, and as I looked there came, I thought, a change. He seemed to swell, his face became suddenly black, and the features seemed to melt and alter, and the next moment I had sprung to my feet and leapt back against the wall, my arms raised to shield me from that prodigy my mind submerged in terror. Oh God! I screamed, and O God! again and again, for there before my eyes, pale and shaken, and half fainting and groping before him with his hands, like a man restored from death, there stood Henry Jekyll. What he told me in the next hour I cannot bring my mind to set on paper. I saw what I saw, I heard what I heard, and my soul sickened at it, and yet now when that sight has faded from my eyes I ask myself if I believe it, and I cannot answer. My life is shaken to its roots, sleep has left me, The deadliest terror sits by me at all hours of the day and night, and I feel that my days are numbered, and that I must die, and yet I shall die incredulous. As for the moral turpitude that man unveiled to me, even with tears of penitence, I cannot, even in memory, dwell on it without a start of horror. I will say but one thing, Utterson, and that, if you can bring your mind to credit it, will be more than enough. The creature who crept into my house that night was, on Jekyll's own confession, known by the name of Hyde, and hunted for in every corner of the land as the murderer of Carew hasty Lanyon. And we're going to leave it there for this episode. Thank you for joining me this week, and I'll be back next week with the next part of The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, If you can't wait until then, and if you want to support the show, you can get the full story now on most audiobook stores, so see the links in the description for where you can pick it up. Thanks again so much for listening, and until next time, have a great week.